Hey, Jade. How's it going? Hi, it's going great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thanks for coming on. So we're going to talk about all things sleep, but I thought we'd start with some a little uh, sleep myths and misconceptions. Um, this is something I did way back in like the fourth episode of this, like a year and a half ago. I had our mutual friend Daniel on and we did a whole episode on on myths and misconceptions. Um, yeah. Yeah. Daniel's <laughs> awesome. Uh, but I wanted to, you know, there's a lot of thankfully what are becoming more kind of well-known myths about sleep and insomnia like you know not everybody in the world needs eight hours of sleep every single night <laughs> or that you know uh people who are more night owls like that they're lazy if they don't like to get up early and we know that that's a little more biological so there's there's a lot of these more now commonly known kind of misconceptions about sleep but i thought it'd be fun to dive into some more slightly more obscure ones that maybe Sounds people haven't, haven't heard yeah. of yet so I thought we'd just kind of like go back and forth, kind of trading off um, some misconceptions about sleep and, and insomnia. But I'll let you uh, kind of kick it off. Like, what would you use? What's a yeah more uncommon sleep myth or misconception that you run across? Well, I don't know how common this one is, but since all my patients are shocked by it, I'm figuring that most people don't know. So I'll, I'll leave with this one. Uh, and that's the myth that you have to sleep through the night without waking up. Uh, in order to get good quality sleep. In fact, a lot of patients say, my goal for sleep therapy is that I don't want to wake up at all. I want to go to bed and then wake up with my alarm next morning, not know at all what happened during the night. But, you know, actually people wake up between about 10 to 16 times per night. And oh, most, wow. Yeah. I didn't know it was that many. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. I mean, okay. most of us remember like one or two or three or four times, a small handful of times. We don't remember most of those brief awakenings uh, because they're so brief and because most of us are not really thinking about waking up very much. So when we do, we don't pay much attention to it. We don't remember it. Our memory does not, the memory does not encode. So we end up feeling like we only got up once to go to the bathroom, once to take a drink of water, and that's it. Uh, but in fact, waking up is a very healthy and normal part of sleep. You know, it happens during the transition between different stages of sleep, between cycles of sleep, when there's a little noise in the environment or when your bed partner rolls over. That's perfectly fine because, you know, evolutionarily speaking, you know, imagine if we all slept like total deadlocks all night. I mean, that's like a buffet just waiting for some saber tooth tiger, right? So it's actually good that we wake up briefly to scan the environment, do whatever we need to do, and then go back to sleep. That's totally fine. That's such a great point. And I think uh, I see this a lot with with my clients. There's this kind of sleep perfectionism almost that that mm -hmm. creeps up in large part because I think the way the media talks about sleep, it gets kind of black and white about like, yeah, you should be sleeping through the night completely. And and so I think it's really, not only is it really relieving to people to know that actually it's totally normal. It doesn't, doesn't mean you get <laughs> yeah. bad sleep. Um, but I think it actually, of course, it, it helps you get better sleep because you're when you're less worried um, in exactly. general, you have an easier time falling asleep. It's yeah, so a great true. One. yeah, I love what you said about sleep perfection. I see that so much where people say, I have perfect sleep hygiene. I always go to bed exactly the same time every night, go to bed early. And it's like these these supposed virtues around sleep that the media has and our culture has perpetu uh, perpetuated. But, you know, we don't need to go to bed the exact same time. We don't have to have perfect sleep hygiene. Imagine all the generations of humans that slept without, you know, lavender mist and, <laughs> and like white noise machines, you know, they were fine. So yeah, I think just relaxing about it, not working so hard on it is a big part of it. That's great. 
So one of my, th this is a question, actually, it's funny, I was, uh, about a week ago, I was emailing back and forth with, uh, I think, another mutual friend of ours, Martin Reed, um, oh, yeah. and we were talking about this question of what to do when you find yourself in bed in the middle of the night, you've woken up and you're having a hard time going back mm -hmm. to sleep. Mm -hmm. Now, I think in, in kind of, in a lot of traditional CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia circles, the, at least for a long time, the standard advice was, well, if you can't fall back to sleep, you should get out of bed and do something else that's kind of relaxing until you're sleepy and then get back into bed. Um, and I, I, I want to get your take on this because I have really been changing my mind on this a lot. Um, I see, so, so this, is, I think a, people can get too rigid with this idea that if I can't fall back to sleep, I should just get right out of bed and do something else. And, and to me, the idea is that it can become kind of a, this like avoidance strategy where the minute you feel like you're not sleepy, you just immediately get right out of bed. It, which sort of reinforces the idea that it's it's not okay to be awake or not completely sleepy when you're in bed. So I've experimented a lot with it, instead of just immediately getting right out of bed and waiting till you're sleepy, can you actually be in bed and just be relaxed, not necessarily asleep and be okay with the fact that, you know, sometimes it's, you know, even if you're not sleeping, it's kind of cozy um, and nice to lay in bed. I mean, it's not, a, it's not this bad, dangerous thing if yeah. you're not completely passed out, like the minute you, right. bed, you know? <laughs> so I wonder if, I don't know if I would call it a myth, but I think it's a, it's a misconception I'm finding that you have to get out of bed in the middle of the night if you can't fall back asleep. I think it can be helpful for some people in some situations, but more and more, I'm, I'm more and more flexible about mm -hmm. what to do when you find yourself awake in the middle of the night. So I, I'd be curious, what, what's your take on that? How, how do you address that dilemma with people? Yeah, I, I so agree with you. I think my thinking on it has evolved as well. I think maybe when I first started doing CBTI years ago, I would have been more of a hardcore, like, you know, we're not going to do condition arousal in bed. We're not going to learn that the bed is an awake place. So get yeah. out of bed. Um, but I really have become more flexible and more, um, I don't want to say lenient because it's not a rule. It's more like, I think if we really understand the intention behind it, then we can more flexibly um, modify that instruction when needed. So for example, you know, the, the point of getting out of bed isn't to punish somebody or to make them fall asleep somehow by getting out of bed, um, but rather to uh, not learn that the bed is a frustrating and struggling kind of place. So if you're not struggling, if you're just kind of cozy, like you said, you know, um, you know, just daydreaming a little bit, you know, enjoying your cuddling with your partner, that's fine. Why not? You know, um, and then you get to enjoy your time in bed, which is the whole point. But if you are finding yourself starting to be really angsty about sleep and really struggling and, and starting to count the minutes of how many hours you have left and it becomes that whole kind of thing, it's probably better to get out of bed and just distract yourself with something else. So I've really become more of a, like, don't count 20 minutes, don't count 15 minutes, go by your feeling. You know, you, you know your body best, you know your mind the best. And if you feel like if you're starting to really struggle, then getting out of bed and doing something else more enjoyable and stopping the struggle is really the whole point. So yeah, I totally agree with you there. Yeah. And I like that, the emphasis on the intention. I think the intention really matters. Like what, what I've seen is that if, if people are, um, you know, find themselves awake in the middle of the night 
and then starting to worry about, oh my God, I'm awake. I'm not, you know, now I'm only going to get six hours of sleep instead of seven. I'm going to feel like garbage tomorrow. You know, uh, I have to get out of bed so I can fall right back asleep. Yeah. If your intention is very fear motivated, yeah, you're, you're gonna, it kind of puts your body into arousal mode, right? It it sort of activates your fight or flight mode, which is totally counterproductive to sleep, of course. Right. So I, I think it's a subtle point, but trying to identify, you know, what is the motivation behind whatever behavior I decide to take, whether it's to stay in bed and try and relax or listen to an audiobook, or whether it's get out of bed and go read magazines on the couch. Um, but the intention behind it really matters, I think, because your brain's paying attention, right? And if it sees you freaked out, it's going to freak out even more. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like if we're sending the message that there's something dangerous about whatever situation we're in, then of course, you know, we're not going to fall asleep. That override is there for survival reasons. There's a very good reason we have arousal. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think the intention and the the general vibe of what we're doing matters. Yeah. Um, again, I would say, like, don't think too much about it. I would say to people, don't think too much about it. Don't try too hard. Don't try to calculate exactly how much relaxation versus arousal there is. You know, that just, you're just going down a spiral at that point. So just kind of go with the flow of what you feel like doing in the moment. Yeah, love it. Okay, what's, uh, you got another one for me? Let's see. Um uh, sleep myths that are not so common. Uh, I'm not sure. Do you have any in mind? Because I, the ones I'm thinking of are, I don't know how common they are. Well, well, that's fine. Let's go, go back to one of those, um, that maybe, you know, that most people maybe haven't, um, even if they, you know, someone who hasn't been in CBTI or hasn't talked to, you know, a professional about this kind of stuff, like what would you, what, what do you think maybe the kind of common messaging out there in the media about sleep either gets wrong or doesn't have enough nuance about? Is maybe yeah, fair enough. I think one really good one is talking about bedtime versus rise time. I think a lot of messaging out there is go to bed early or go uh, choose a consistent bedtime, you know, make your bedtime. There's a lot of en- emphasis on bedtime. But really, I think the easier way to set a more consistent circadian rhythm to help your body clock be you know on track is to choose a consistent rise time because you can control when you get up better than you can control when you fall asleep and um you know also when you wake up you hopefully get a big dose of sunlight and that really helps us set the clock and set the scene um wake you up stimulate you that's like the the one big event every 24 hours that happens on time, that'll really, really help your circadian rhythm. Whereas going to bed at the same time, well, sometimes you're not sleepy. Sometimes you had a sedentary day. Sometimes, you know, you had a, a much more um, active day and you probably should have gone to bed earlier. Or, you know, your bedtime is kind of where your body will tell you how much sleep you need by making you sleepy at a certain time. So I think that's that's a simple point, but maybe an important one is that... You don't have to stick to a strict bedtime, but maybe do get consistent on the rise time end and just let yourself fluctuate on the bedtime end, depending on how you feel. I love that. I think this is such a big misconception out there. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's our fault. It's like profession, sleep professionals yeah. <laughs> fault for like yeah. kind of em- overemphasizing consistency uh-huh. with going to bed. And I, yeah. I think 
one of the things that really helped me make sense of this is when you realize that um, sleep is a dynamic system, right? Like your body is supposed to be able to change how much sleep yes. it gets one night or the other. Yeah. Right. Cause if you, if you, the example I always talk about is if you, if one day you ran a marathon, right. Yeah. <laughs> and another day you like laid around and watch Netflix all day. Yeah. Like, I don't think you're going to need the same amount of sleep both days. Right. Yes. <laughs> right? And if you so try to force the same amount of sleep both days, you're going to be sleep deprived on one day and just totally having insomnia the other day. Exactly. Yeah. And also just to point, your point about control, I think is so key. Like I think so many problems with, I mean, just generally, but with, with sleep in particular come from trying to control things you can't actually control, like making yourself sleepy, not going to happen. Correct. (laughs) Uh, If anything, it's going to backfire and do the opposite, right? Um, So I love that. I think that's a really subtle, but important point that you can, you can control when you get up and when you start your day, even if it's hard, right? Getting up early is always a little hard, but you can control it. It's under your control. Whether you feel sleepy, not so much. <laughs> not so much. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I did just think of another one in case. Yeah, um, go for it. Yeah. So this one is very interesting, especially with the popular rising of, you know, Fitbits and whatnot people are tracking their sleep with these consumer trackers and often people will show me their tracker data and say oh my gosh i only got 15 percent deep sleep last night or only 20 percent deep sleep that's terrible i should be getting 100 percent, right and and actually deep sleep is only supposed to take up about 15 to 20 percent um and you know, it's not like the deeper, the better. It's it's apples and oranges. Every type of sleep, I don't even like to call them stages because that implies that one is deeper or better or whatever. But all the different stages of sleep or types of sleep are important and getting a healthy balance of all of them over the night, just like having a healthy balanced meal of different types of nutrition is important. So yeah, I always reassure people, well, first of all, your tracker is not super good at telling different sleep stages apart. And even if it was 15% is a totally normal amount of deep sleep to get. I love it. That is, and this is becoming more and more, I'm finding this is more and more of a problem is how kind of obsessive people are getting about with with the advent of all this technology whether it's um, wrist trackers or apps on the phone or or whatever and i I only imagine this is going to become more of an issue as as we get more and more technology that um you know isn't bad necessarily but to your point like you got to know how to interpret it right and so i think that's why that your your point is so helpful is because that's actually a perfectly normal amount of deep sleep Uh uh-huh Yeah. These are great. Um, I, I love talking about this stuff. I just get so Me too. Excited. Isn't it fun? <laughs> <laughs> totally fun. Okay. So let's switch gears a little bit. I, I've got a bunch of kind of topics around sleep I want to I wanna pepper you with um, and get your get your take on. So here's an, a, a one that I think is really common but doesn't get talked a lot about, which is nightmares. Um, yeah. So talk a little bit about... now. So obviously nightmares, we all have nightmares sometimes. Like it's... It, some of it potentially is just pretty random, like when you end up having a nightmare or not. Um, or even I, I would think there's some natural variation in terms of whether certain people tend to have nightmares more often than others. But I don't know. So let's let's start there. Like, wh- what do we know about, about nightmares and why they happen? Yeah, so there's one big thing about nightmares we should just put out on the table to begin with is which is trauma so when people have experienced trauma if they have ptsd 
they are much more likely mm-hmm. to have nightmares frequently. And the nightmares may not always be about the trauma, but often there's themes around the trauma and safety and danger um, that come up in these nightmares. But also nightmares can just happen for no reason at all. Someone can have never explain, uh, experienced trauma and still have nightmares frequently or infrequently. And nightmares uh, are more common in children than in adults too. So there is something about something about neurodevelopment, maybe hormones, um, maybe just the way our brain is wired at different ages. Um, we don't know that much about nightmares, to be honest. One thing that we do know in the behavioral model of nightmares is that having nightmares is a behavior that your brain does. So what that means is your brain can learn to have nightmares and it can unlearn to have nightmares. I mean, not maybe completely, but it can sort of, uh, we can sort of turn up or turn down the frequency of nightmares. Um, the way I like to explain it to patients is, is like this. You know, if you're driving a car down a country road and it's, it's not even a road, it's just two ruts, you know, in the field that you're driving across. Uh, the more you drive across those ruts, the deeper those ruts become. And next time you come to this road, the harder it's going to be to veer off of those ruts because you're just sinking deeper and deeper in that path, right? So that's the way nightmares happen. The more you have nightmares, the more your brain learns to go down that path and the more you have nightmares. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. Whereas if we teach the brain to do something else, carve out a different path, then the brain will be more likely to do that other thing. Um, so that's why imagery rehearsal therapy is one of the evidence-based therapies for, uh, for nightmares, uh, which is where we actually, we take a nightmare that you have, uh, we, we have you sort of tell the story of it, and then you get to change whatever you want about it. You know, maybe it's a different ending, maybe it's different characters, maybe you just give yourself a magic wand in the dream where you can just wave it and whatever, you know, everybody freezes and you get to get away. You know, so if we rehearse that new way of doing the dream, um, then you're more likely to have the more neutral or pleasant dream or just to not have the nightmare in the first place. So it's kind of, it almost feels kind of magical how that happens, but it does work for a lot of people. Interesting. Okay. So where my mind goes is, wouldn't it be so in my experience some something i've done sometimes that that seemed to be helpful for for nightmares is to well let, let me back up a pattern i've found with with and not necessarily people who um who have trauma in their past but just people who seem to have an inordinate amount of nightmares and it bothers them it, a pattern is that they they elaborate on their nightmares a lot yeah. so the minute they wake up with a nightmare they wake up their partner and like tell them about it right or as soon as they get out of bed they're they're talking about their nightmare or, or they're yeah. journaling about it or they're, they're so they're rehearsing it a lot and, and what i found is if you get people to stop elaborating on it so you can briefly kind of validate it okay that was scary but I'm, i don't need to actually talk about it that much more or i don't need to think more about it um that itself often helps decrease the frequency and intensity of nightmares so my question is how does that jibe with the idea of doing the, this kind of imaginal rehearsals where you you modify the content of the nightmare like wouldn't like you could almost imagine that isn't that is that rehearsing the nightmare and so reinforcing for your brain that nightmares generally are something you want to keep doing more of or like, how does that work? I guess. Like, <laughs> no, I think actually what you said is right on point and, and that actually jives really well with imagery rehearsal therapy. So what you're describing there is someone who is 
over and over again, encoding the memory of the actual nightmare. So they're driving that car down those ruts over and over and over again. Um, and you know, the way that memory works is that if we don't rehearse something, we don't remember it. You know, we don't, we don't, we forget it. Just like when we briefly wake up during the night because of some noise, we probably don't remember it the next day because we didn't later keeping on thinking about it and talking about it. So a lot of us actually have dreams and nightmares and then just don't remember the next day because we don't really pay much attention. We don't really rehearse them. But you're right, when people sort of get into this pattern of rehearsing their nightmares a lot, thinking about them a lot, putting a lot of emphasis and meaning on them, then they become a big part of their mental life. And, and that digs those ruts uh, deeper. So what imagery rehearsal therapy is for is not rehearsing those nightmares over and over again. We don't really need even a lot of detail about the original nightmare. We just want to kind of call up one nightmare. And then really, we spend a lot more time rehearsing the change. So whatever it is that's different, the magic door that opens or the, the alternate ending or whatever, people are, get really creative. And it's really fun, actually. Um, and, and rehearsing that new aspect that new element is then what carves out that different path for the car to go gotcha. yeah makes total sense so you you mentioned that we do know that nightmares are just more frequent in people with um, with trauma and ptsd what about what about stress more generally though so, so one way to look at trauma and, and ptsd is that it's in some ways there's an artificial cutoff right like what what constitutes trauma or a, a Sort sure. of traumatic experience reaction. Um, so do we like, if you're just generally, let's say you're going through a, a stretch of time that's just inherently pretty stressful. It's not necessarily traumatic um, in the, in the technical sense, but it's definitely more stressful. Like you just lost your job and you're trying to find a new job and you got a new kid on the way. I don't know. It's just like a lot of big life events. Um, is stress generally related to nightmares or not, or, or does it, ha is there something unique about that really extreme sort of uh, trauma uh, type of stress and reaction. Do we do we know about that? I mean, I think that's such a good question. Um, I'm gonna cop out and say a little bit of both, um, mostly because in the trauma sphere of things, there's a very specific profile of military trauma that is just qualitatively different from other types of stress and trauma. And we don't really quite understand it, but it's particularly a common in younger males who had military experience, especially combat experience, who you know have nightmares just really a lot more frequently. And they're more likely to also act out their nightmares, um, you know, punch and kick and run and um, have other sort of parasomnia things that don't necessarily come with nightmares usually. So, you know, usually when you have a nightmare, you're not acting it out. Sure. But this specific type of combat related military trauma that they, for some reason, are more likely to do things like sleepwalking, acting out dreams, things like that. Um, but I, I do totally agree with your point that I think, you know, it's a spectrum. There, It is a bit of an artificial cutoff for what constitutes trauma versus stress. And I think, yeah, people who are going undergoing a lot of stress are more likely to have nightmares. It's almost like one theory of nightmares is just that it's a dissipation of um of built up pent up stress during the day it's almost mm. like you're 
you're bulldozing through your day, you're just surviving, you're just making it through the day. And then at night, your mind has to just emotion regulate somehow. And there's just so much pent up emotional energy, it just needs to like, bleh, like vomit it out almost. Um, and so that's one of the theories. And, and we don't just we don't quite know enough to really say if that's the case. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. interesting. It's almost like there's two kind of processes going on here. One is that you if you because of trauma, stress, whatever, you just have more of that difficult emotion for your mind to sort of process through, it's it's more likely for that some of that to spill over. But yeah. there can also be factors where if you, for instance, are in the habit of elaborating and thinking about and being super interested in your sort of dreams and nightmares, your window into that process is going to be bigger as well, right? And Absolutely. so you get more of an effect. Yes, yeah. you're so right. Then it becomes a vicious cycle and we get stuck in this, you know, pattern of having nightmares. Interesting. Okay, let's um let's jump off of the the it's such an interesting topic, but uh, I have so many other topics <laughs> I want to ask you about, so we're going <laughs> to we're going to switch gears here. So I was um before the interview I was poking around your website a little bit um and you had a description of a uh workshop that you sometimes give and the title of it was the power of sleep for collective healing, reimagining sleep can shift historical legacies of oppression and build a more just society. And I was, I was like, oh my gosh, like we, we should spend the whole episode talking about that. I'm so intrigued by this. Um, so can, can you kind of unpack that a little bit? Like what, what is this, um, this kind of topic or, or talk that you give? Um, tell me about this a little bit. I'm very curious. Yeah. So, so this is pretty close to my heart. It's a topic that I've been stewing on for a really long time, thinking a lot about. So I guess to start with the foundation, it, the premise is that we know there's sleep health disparities in our society. You know, people who are racial and ethnic minorities and lower socioeconomic uh, class folks have more sleep problems. Um, they are more likely to get insufficient sleep. So this is real sleep deprivation we're talking about. They're also more likely to have things like sleep apnea, um, you know, uh, insomnia. Um, they're also more likely to have cardiovascular disease, diabetes, all of these things, which are also made more likely by having sleep problems. So it's kind of a vicious cycle of being stuck in a place where the worse your sleep health is, the worse your the rest of your health is, and that probably doesn't help your sleep either. So, so I wanted to learn more about, you know, why is this? Where did it come from? And part of it is environmental constraints, right? So, so you know, when you live in more packed housing, um, and there's more, you know, police sirens going off at night outside your window and there's more lights and there's more noise um, and there's less green space and there's less fresh air, like all of these basics, less nutritious food. Uh, if you're working three part-time jobs to make ends meet, you know, all of these things are, are more likely to screw up your sleep. And also shift work, we know is terrible for your sleep quality and for your health. And it's um, people who are racial minorities who are more likely to be doing shift work. So there's just so many levels of system barriers to people who are racial minorities, ethnic minorities, getting better quality sleep. Uh, but there's also a cultural component too that I noticed where my Black patients are more likely to say things like, I'll sleep when I'm dead, 
you know, I can't be lazy and sleep in, you know, I got to keep going. And, and when I ask, you know, where, where does this idea come from? Like, who told you this? They'll say, like, I grew up with my grandmother who worked on a plantation, or I, um, I was raised by my parents who both had multiple jobs and they taught us that you have to hustle and you have to be like really disciplined and wake up early and start working and and you know you can't rest it's not safe to rest or it's it's you know um you 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 have to stay ahead of the game you know the harder you work the more you can like you can you can get out of this um and oh man there's just so much to unpack there but you know there's intergenerational ideas passed down where sleep is deprioritized because i mean for good reason for you know everything else has to be prioritized and if you trace it all the way back to the days of slavery in america um think about how how uh they the slave masters would control a population of people, sometimes a bigger population than themselves, right? So, I mean, there are a lot of ways to do that, that they did terrible, cruel methods. And one of them was sleep deprivation. If you make it so that people are sleep deprived and just always barely on the edge of functioning, they're less likely to rebel, less likely to conspire to, you know, overthrow you and, and escape and all of these things. Um, and also there are there were methods of, you know, not giving you a permanent place to sleep. Like sometimes slave masters will come in in the middle of the night and just like sh um, shuffle everybody around, you know, so people couldn't sort of be in cahoots during the night and also then your sleep will be interrupted, you'd be more sleep deprived right. and not allowing people to follow their natural rhythms of sleep, but rather making them all get up really early before dawn to start working um, and then punishing people when they fell asleep, you know, during the day and took naps or were quote unquote lazy, but really right. they were sleep deprived. They were not lazy. And then they would turn it around. Like Thomas Jefferson wrote about how, um, you know, the whites are more intellectually superior because, you know, we're not just falling asleep at, at any given chance. So then it's like, it becomes a justification for oppressing people. The fact that they're sleep deprived and falling asleep. Um, so then it just became a terrible, vicious cycle of, um, of, of mental, physical oppression, um, of keeping people down, you know, making it so that they cannot, they cannot be at 100% functioning, and then use turning the, around and using that as justification for oppressing them. So, you know, of course, think about mothers passing that information down to daughters, like, don't fall asleep on the job. That's not safe. You will be hurt. You will be beat. Worse things will happen to you if you fall asleep. Or, you know, you got to get up early and, and like be ready to work first thing in the morning before dawn or else, you know? So this idea of sleeping being dangerous and sleeping being stigmatized as being lazy uh, and then resting the idea of resting and sleeping just being a, a terrible connotation, having a terrible connotation gets passed down from generation to generation in this intergenerational trauma. Um, and now we have lots of folks who are, you know, afraid to go to bed or feeling like they shouldn't go to bed when they're sleepy or they get up way earlier than they should artificially for no re like arbitrarily for no good reason right. um and they're telling each other things like i'll sleep when i'm dead and even even people who have made it like celebrities 
athletes, they're, they're going out there and saying, you know, I've made it. I'm a good role model for kids. Kids, listen up, like get up at 4am to start practicing or, you know, like never end the hustle. And, and it's like, that seems like it's an inspirational, motivational message, but it's really just giving people the wrong message about sleep. And so anyway, this, this is a long rant. You can tell I'm passionate about it. Um, but yeah, in this workshop, I, I help people sort of ask questions about where their ideas about sleep and rest come from, you know, wh- wh- who told them about these ideas and who do these ideas actually serve? And, you know, what does that mean for your relationship with your sleep? And, you know, how can we actually have a better relationship with sleep so that we don't see it as a chore to be done, you know, an engineering problem to be solved um, and, and just something to be gotten out of the way? How can we actually see it as a healthy part of ourselves that we can love and cherish and actually see as a good investment in our own health and our own productivity and fulfillment in life rather than something that we need to work against? Yeah, gosh, I love it. It's so interesting too, this idea of kind of intergenerational sleep trauma, right? How, yes. how what started off centuries ago for very good reason has sort of trickled and kind of evolved down into these, these really unhelpful mindsets around yes. sleep that continue to be um, barriers to people um, getting, getting healthy sleep. So one of the things that I've this often bothered me about the way we talk about sleep culturally is that the the primary messaging is it's all about sleep hygiene, right? And it's yeah. this, it's this laundry list yeah. of tons of things, often very expensive things you oh, need yeah. to do, right? Your bedroom has to be completely dark and noise-free, right? Yeah. So what does that mean? Well, if you live in a noisy neighborhood, what are you supposed to like move to another neighborhood, right? Or even you're, you're going to yeah. buy like super expensive blackout shades on, on Amazon and you're going to like white noise machines, $5,000 mattresses that cool you. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Right. Afford to do all this kind of stuff. Right. (laughs) And this is all assuming you have your own bedroom, by the way, and that you're not sharing rooms with your kids or, you know, other household Mm, members, which is, I mean, that's a luxury in the West in the recent history that we just kind of take for granted, but most of the world doesn't live like that. We don't have individual bedrooms for individual people and kids in our households in the vast majority of the world. Well, and what's, you know, what's really interesting too, is that the more I get frustrated with that side of the messaging around sleep, but also the more I I do CBTI is that it makes me realize this cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. It's, it's actually a much, (laughs) it's a much more accessible and inexpensive way of improving your sleep. I mean, most of the suggestions in CBTI, they don't involve buying $100 gadgets, right? right. Or completely yeah. like rearranging your environment, right? They're they're much more about things we actually have control over. Like, I mean, you mentioned a, a couple of them, right? Take Not being super rigid about when you go to bed, like listening to your body, right? And trying to get up at a more kind of consistent time. You're like, you, you don't need to spend $400 to do that, right? Uh, I think there's a great sort of, I, I think it's one of the things CBTI has going for it that that's so important is that it's it's not something that, um, yeah, is super expensive or or is inaccessible. At least the ideas in it are not are something that anyone can have access to and and utilize um, almost for free. Exactly, like you say. I mean, changing your mindset about sleep doesn't cost you a cent. I mean, other than what you're paying the therapist or the CBTI provider sure. to do. Hopefully you have insurance that covers it, which is 
also kind of the big assumption. So yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I think CBTI does offer something really valuable, uh, a kind of a sleep equalizer in, in many ways. Um, but I think there are a couple of big problems. One is that uh, in theory, it could be really accessible to everyone. But as you know, there are very few CBTI providers out there. So in reality, people are not actually accessing it because most people don't know about it. And even if you know about it, what are the chances that there's someone in your area and takes your insurance and is available, blah, 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 right? So that's one problem. And the other problem is that, um, so what, one of my good friends and colleagues were doing this meta-analysis to look at the characteristics of the people who have been included in CBTI trials to see you know, who who actually participated in the designing and the, you know, testing of this therapy. And of course, it's like mostly, you know, upper middle class white folks. Uh, and, and even when it's done outside of the U.S., it's like Sweden and South Korea and, and Britain, you know, and we don't really have almost any data on how does it work for minorities in the U.S., for uh, people who are not white and European um, or or like rich East Asian uh, in the rest of the world. So we actually don't have a lot of good idea. Like we don't really have a good idea about whom this works for. Um, and in my clinical experience, I'm really starting to doubt that standard CBTI suits minority populations because of the issues I brought up earlier about, you know, that there are different mindsets about, about, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Uh, there are different mindsets about, um, and, and different realities about when and where you can sleep and your sleep environment and things like that. And, and so it's, I think it's, mm, it's a mixed bag. CBTI is awesome can improve sleep for, it can be a big equalizer, but we really need to do more research about how to modify it um, for, for everybody. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a great, it brings up the, a really important distinction between kind of formal CBTI and how it's done, you know, sort of the protocol driven CBTI versus like, what are the underlying principles yes. in CBTI? And is there a way to Either to either create new protocols and, and study designs and, and approaches that are um, that take into account challenges that, that specific uh, populations might have, or is there a way to present those those core principles in a way that's much more accessible um, yes. to everybody? Because I I mean I often wonder about that doing CBTI. Like I mean it's important that I'm trained specifically in CBTI, but it's I mean truth be told it's not the most complicated therapy out there like they're no, no, really science. straightforward in a lot yeah. of ways so i okay one of the questions I, I i had for you was if and i know you you work um in a medical school so if you and i, I hope this the, this isn't too rocky of a transition but let's thought experiment let's say you are somehow you get the undivided attention of every single fourth year medical student in the country oh. for five minutes oh. <laughs> right. So every like general in the next, you know, decade, you've yes, got the ear of all the doctors. Yeah. So yeah. what, what, how would you use that time to improve how medical providers think about and work with sleep problems? Right. Cause these are the frontline people. These are the people who 
uh, certainly not everybody, but more people are going to get exposed to, certainly more than someone who gets exposed to a, a CBTI trained psychotherapist, right? So w- what would be like your one or two things that you would really want to impress upon sort of general medical providers about sleep? Yes. I think if I only had five minutes, the thing I would lead with is sleep hygiene and CBTI are not the same thing. And don't just give your patient a list of sleep hygiene tips that may actually backfire. People are not going to follow them anyway. Um, CBTI gets to the behavioral and cognitive roots the things that actually keep insomnia going. So, ref- oh, uh, oh, and by the way, I would tell them that we exist, that behavioral sleep medicine specialists <laughs> <Right>. exist. <laughs> Hi, uh, you can refer to us. Um, so those are probably like the number one things to get out of the way. And then I would probably go with tired and sleepy are not the same thing. Like be precise about that when you assess your patients, because those are those are two very different problems re- requiring very different solutions. If they're sleepy, Maybe like sleep apnea is is the most likely thing. If they're tired, maybe they're stressed and overworked and anxious and depressed. Um, and, you know, who knows? So, whew, yeah, I mean, I wish I could teach a course to yeah. all fourth year medical students, but maybe one lecture would be nice too. Uh, yeah. So in, in a similar vein, like let's say you had some sort of a platform for talking to you know, you got, you got a five minute ad during the Super Bowl, <laughs> and oh you could gosh. just, you could talk about, you could give people some, some sleep tips. I'm trying to get at what, what does CBTI have to offer? What are some of those core principles that don't necessarily require, you know, a, a 12 week stint of CBTI with a, with a professional that don't require even like reading some big, huge book? Like, what are to you? What are like what's one kind of core principle that that basically anybody could apply to pretty good effect that that most people don't think about? And I know we've we've touched on a lot of those kind of core principles, but sure. like where's the potential there if we re- if we really do believe that some of the core principles in CBTI are um ex- you know imp- can be p- impactful to anybody and be helpful to anybody? Like where where would you start with that? Ooh, if I had to boil it down, I would say, listen to your body instead of arbitrary numbers. So, you know, everybody comes in thinking they need to sleep eight hours every night, but listen to your body. Are you actually sleepy? You know, that, I think that's a pretty powerful concept right there. Yeah. Like, are you tired or sleepy? Because those are not the same thing. Because if you're tired, there are lots of solutions to tired which might involve actually getting up and doing more stuff. But if you're sleepy, the answer is to go to bed and sleep. So which are you actually experiencing? I so, love that. Yeah. So I feel like so many cases of insomnia, like chronic insomnia that I've seen, yeah. basically boil down to that. Someone had some temporary issue with sleep, which yeah. we all have, by the way. Nobody's a perfect yeah. sleeper, right? Yeah. <laughs> And then they got all these rules in their head about, well, I have to start going to bed earlier, right? Which yes. then leads to this vicious cycle of now I'm in bed for like an hour and a half, not sleepy. Yeah. So what yeah. am I going to do? Of course, I'm going to start worrying about the fact that I'm not asleep, yeah. right? Because I'm going to get dementia, this... right? If I don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah right, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's that's huge. I think that idea of listening to your body, not all these arbitrary rules that we get thrown at us 24-7 about sleep is, is pretty huge. And I think that's also important too, because it cuts across diagnostic lines. It's not like, that's not Mm. just a message for people with insomnia. That's also a message for people who are 
like pulling all nighters or not giving themselves enough opportunity to sleep or, you know, who have inherited these intergenerational trauma sleep beliefs, like listen to your body. If you are sleepy, go to bed. You don't have to stay up and work harder or like, you know, there are some things you can let go of or, or try to prioritize sleep, you know, if you are sleepy. So I think that's why that matters a lot is that it's, it cuts across different diagnoses. And I think something that goes hand in hand with that, which I'm really passionate about. And if, if I had one thing to carve on my gravestone, this would be it, which is sleep is your friend. You know, it's not an engineering problem that you have to figure out the perfect algorithm for. It's not a chore that you have to get done just so you can function. It's not a performance enhancer, by the way. I think that's such an almost like insulting way of thinking about sleep. Like it's somehow like your servant and it's like serving you and it's, you know, working for you. Like you're not the master of sleep and you're not the servant of sleep either. Sleep and you, your friends, you know, sleep has been with you from the day you were born and it will be with you until the day you die. If you live to 99, you you will have spent about 30 years sleeping or trying to sleep, you know, in your life. Like how, what, what kind of relationship do you want to have with someone that you're spending 33 consecutive years with in a room, right? So like if we respect and love and cherish sleep from that perspective, I think we would just be a lot better to ourselves and to our sleep and, you know, go with the flow, listen to our bodies, give our bodies what we need. Mic drop, Jade. No. <laughs> awesome. I mean, I just could not agree more that the, the sort of relational approach to sleep and instead of using it instrumentally or seeing ourselves as a victim of it to think about it like like a friend right sleep is your friend like how would you interact with a friend Uh, right yes you would be nice to your friend you'll be forgiving to your friend you will make make your house nice uh, and be ready for your friend to arrive but not force the invitation Mm. you wouldn't obsessively track your friend's every move and get mad at your friend for not performing (laughs) for you and blame all your problems on your friend i mean that's a terrible relationship that's more like an obsessive stalker or like a like a abusive boyfriend or something right like you know treat your sleep how you would treat an actual friend and i bet sleep will be good to you too i love it well jade this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for, for making the time and, and sharing all of your, your insights and wisdom with us. I mean, it's just, I, I know this is going to be really helpful. Where can people go if they want to learn more about you and all your awesome work that you're doing? Oh, sure. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Um, so my website is www.jadewuphd.com. So J-A-D-E-W-U-P-H-D.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I won't spell it all out. Maybe you'll put it in the show notes or something like that. Um, but yeah, I'm just out there trying to spread the good word. Mm. And you, um, I, I believe r- rumor has it, you're working on a book. Is that, is that true? That's true. Oh my gosh. How did I forget to mention that? Um, I'm so deep <laughs> in writing it. I'm forgetting to promote it. So yeah, I'm working on a, a book about insomnia and the whole premise is that sleep is your friend. And here, here's a way to like go to couples therapy, you know, with your, with your sleep and how to reset that relationship and really get to know your sleep and get to love your sleep uh, in a healthy, sustainable way. Um, and it's, it is the core of it is CBTI, but I've added a lot of other components that I think will be helpful. 
So that will hopefully come out um, late next year, late 2022. So stay tuned. I'll um, I'll let people know about that in my newsletter and on Twitter and all of that. So yeah, stay tuned. I love it. We'll get you back on the podcast to, to talk more about it. Oh, it please. Out. Please I'll do. That'll be fun. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nick. Thanks, Jade. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.